Hello, listeners and fans of the History of Witchcraft podcast. I'm Ryan Stitt, and Sam has given me the opportunity to introduce today's episode. You all are currently learning about magic, sorcery, and witchcraft in the ancient world. Well, I'm the researcher, writer, and host extraordinaire of another history podcast, that being the History of Ancient Greece, or THOAG for short. It's a weekly deep dive into one of the most influential and fundamental peoples in Western civilization. Covering over two millennia, from the Bronze Age to Homer, to classical Greek democracy, to the Roman conquest. The History of Ancient Greece podcast sets out to tell the history of a fundamental civilization by bringing to life the fascinating stories of all of the ancient sources, while corroborating with the archaeological record. And not just military and political history either, but their society, how the Greeks live day to day, as well as their culture, their art, architecture, philosophy, literature, religion, science, and all the other incredible aspects of the Greek achievement. If after this episode you decide to give Thoag a listen, you can find the show in your favorite podcast directory, as well as through the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, the Facebook page, or on Twitter at Greek History Pod. But before I let you go, I would like to leave you, listeners of the History of Witchcraft podcast, with an interesting passage about the origins of the blind seer Teresius, which should tie in quite nicely with today's episode. Quote, Teresius once saw two snakes mating. He wounded one of them and was changed into a woman. Apollo prophesied that if he saw two snakes mating again and wounded one of them, he would be turned back into a man. Teresius watched for an opportunity did what the gods said, and was turned into a man again. Zeus had an argument with Hera, maintaining that women derive more pleasure from sex than men do, whereas Hera claimed the opposite. They agreed to ask Teresius, since he had experience of both sexes. He said that men get 10% of the pleasure, women 90%. This angered Hera, who stabbed him in the eyes, making him blind. But Zeus gave him the gift of prophecy and a lifespan of seven generations. End quote. Fragment 37. Dicarchus of Masana. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 17. Poisoners, soul-drawers, and mathematicians. And Hermippus has something else to say about Pythagoras, for he relates that when he was in Italy he made a little chamber under the ground and told his mother to write down what happened on a tablet indicating the time at which things took place and to send them down to him until he came up again. This his mother did. After a time, Pythagoras came up again, emaciated and skeletal. He went into the assembly and claimed that he had come from Hades, and he read out to the people what had happened. They were beguiled by his words and wept and wailed. They believed that he was divine and even handed their wives over to him, thinking that they would learn something from him. From the writings of Diogenes Laertius. And if a man appears to be like one causing harm by bindings, charms, or certain incantations, or any poisoning of this sort whatsoever, whether he is a diviner or interpreter of portents, 
he is to be executed. Plato, in his laws. Oh wealth, kingship, and triumph in the battle of life's arts, how great the envy you have allowed to accrue for me. If it is for the sake of this office, which I did not want, but the city gave me as a gift, that trusty Creon, who was my friend from the start, now secretly stalks me and is eager to cast me out. For he has suborned this mage, a stitcher of devices, a deceitful beggar-priest, who can see only profit, but has a blind art. Come, tell me, how can you be a percipient diviner? How was it that you did not utter something to deliver these citizens when the Sphinx was here? Her riddle was not going to be solvable by just anyone. True prophecy was required, but it became all too clear that you had no prophetic knowledge, either from the birds or from any of the gods. But I come along, ignorant Oedipus, and I stopped her. I hit home with pure intelligence, not with anything I learned from the birds. This is the person you are trying to cast out, in hopes of becoming right-hand man at Creon's throne. I think you and the contriver of this plot will regret your attempt to expel me as polluted. If you did not have the look of an old man, a beating would have taught you how presumptuous you are. Oedipus in Oedipus Tyrannus by Sophocles Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last week, we looked at how the Zoroastrian Persian empires thought of witchcraft. We travelled into the afterlife to see what punishments awaited those who allied themselves to Ahriman, and heard about a few healing rituals that were meant to ward off sickness causing spirits. This week, we remain in the classical era as we examine the ancient Greeks, whose culture and politics played an incredible role in the later society of the Roman Empire, and, through Rome's domination of Europe, in the development of Western civilization. The period we're looking at today is roughly between 1200 BCE until around the 3rd century BCE. In this period, prior to the reign of Alexander the Great and his subjugation of the Greek and Persian worlds, the Greek world is a fractious, squabbling array of city-states and kingdoms stretching from the western Mediterranean to the shores of the Black Sea. Names like Sparta, Athens, Corinth and Thebes remain in the popular mind as icons of Greek civilization, but these polis, or city-states, were sometimes rivals, sometimes allies. In the face of Persian aggression, the Hellenic polities managed some level of cooperation, but even facing down total subjugation, the Hellenes remained at each other's throats. Divisions between democracies, tyrannies, and kingdoms were rife, as were differences between Dorian, Ionian, and Aeolian Greeks. So it isn't as simple as pointing to a single Greek culture for dozens, if not hundreds, of communities over a period of almost a millennium. Still, there are elements that we can consider shared enough between polis to constitute a loosely connected culture, and one of these was the Greek pantheon. Of course, the idea of a single classical Greek religion is as inaccurate as the idea of a single classical Greek state, and across the Greek world, city-states and colonies worshipped different gods in different ways. There was no central authority, no Pontifex Maximus or Shahanshah dictating what each god was and how they were to be worshipped although there was enough agreement that we can talk about the Greek gods with some confidence. The gods and demigods of Olympus were varied and numerous, corresponding to almost every aspect of Greek life. Feasting, drinking, the harvest, war, wisdom, love, childbirth and crossroads. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, did he just say crossroads? That's correct, but we'll get back to that in a minute. The gods were capricious and vain, often interfering with the works of mankind and requiring sacrifices and praise to either 
assist their worshippers, or at the very least not cause them unnecessary hindrances out of boredom or spite. While the Greek gods were not omnipotent, they could manifest a large degree of control over their respective domains. Poseidon could, if he so wished, calm a sea for a voyage, and offerings were made to try and convince him to do so. One god of particular interest to us is the goddess of the crossroads, Hecate. This name might ring a bell, and you may be wondering why you recognise the name of the Greek goddess of crossroads. If this is the case, provided you aren't a Greek history buff, that's a given, it might be because of her presence in Shakespeare's Macbeth. For those who haven't had the pleasure of reading or watching Macbeth, three sisters, the witches who begin the play by revealing the future to the titular Macbeth, later meet with Hecate, as Hecate was also the goddess of witchcraft, sorcery, and necromancy. Hecate appears to have been worshipped primarily in the city of Colchis, in modern-day Georgia in the Caucasus, a place we will revisit later. Her influence can be seen in the city-states of the Greek peninsula, however, where the bodies of convicted sorcerers and other criminals were left at crossroads, in order to confuse their spirits and prevent them from returning to haunt their prosecutors. Alongside Hecate, we can find other witches in Homeric epics, such as Circe and Medea. Much like the gods, there is not one narrative involving these women, and Medea in particular is the subject of substantially contradicting stories, while Circe is sometimes the daughter of Helios, the god of the sun, and at others, she's the daughter of Hecate herself. Another difference is that sometimes Circe takes on Hecate's title as the goddess of witchcraft. Her most prominent appearance is in the Odyssey, the epic describing the trials facing the titular Odysseus on his return home after his victory in the Trojan War. After losing most of his fleet in a previous disaster, Odysseus lands on the island of Circe. Here, he sends his crew out to scout the island, whereupon they find a bizarre scene. A large mansion surrounded by thick forest and an oddly docile pack of wolves and lions, which act like pets and fawn over the visitors. This, if you hadn't guessed, was Circe's domain, and while she worked at an enormous loom, she offered her visitors a range of their favourite foods, and all but one gladly took her up on the offer after a long voyage. The one holdout, Eurolochus, sensed some danger, and he was right. The food was drugged, and the crew either passed out or were otherwise unable to escape when Circe began to transform them into animals. Eurolochus fled to warn Odysseus, who immediately sprang into action and trekked into the forest to free his men. Here we have some of that divine intervention that the gods were sometimes willing to do. The god Hermes, sent by the goddess Athena, appeared before Odysseus and warned him of the danger Circe posed, telling him to protect himself from her poisons with a special herb. This would make him immune to her powers, at which point he should draw his sword and make as if to attack her, at which point Circe would use her feminine wiles to seduce Odysseus and take his manhood. Odysseus, obviously not entirely keen on that outcome, finds out how to prevent this, which is essentially to make her promise not to take his manhood. When Odysseus reaches Circe, he follows this divine advice and succeeds in rescuing his crew. At this point, they stay with Circe for another year before setting off again with new directions from the goddess, who bore Odysseus three sons who would gain their own place in the canon of Greek literature. Circe largely comes off as rather benign. Sure, she roofied every person that came to her island and transformed them into her pets, but she was a goddess, that's just the thing they did. Medea, on the other hand, is another story. 
Medea hailed from the lands of Colchis, a daughter of King Aetes, who was married to Circe's sister, making Medea Circe's niece. Isn't Greek mythology neat like that? Everyone is related to everyone else. Medea first appears in connection to Jason, of Argonaut fame, where she plays a key role in him winning the Golden Fleece. She provides him with a balm that makes him fireproof, which was somewhat helpful when he had to break and utilise some fire-breathing oxen to plough a field. She tells him the secret to defeating the stop-motion skeletons that sprout from the teeth of a dragon, and puts a sleepless dragon to sleep with her herbs. She assisted Jason on the promise that, should he succeed, he would marry her and take her away. Which, of course, he did, receiving the Golden Fleece and returning home. But on the way, in order to slow down the pursuing King Aetes, who wasn't particularly pleased that Jason had just run off with both the Golden Fleece and his daughter, Medea's brother, Prince Absiatus, was killed. Now, some tellings say that it was Medea that did the deed, murdering her brother and dismembering his body for her father to find. Others say that it was Jason, in self-defence. Either way, this was a heinous crime, and so the Argonauts stopped off at a familiar locale, Circe's Island, where dear Aunt Circe purified the Argonauts of the crime of Absertius's murder. So Medea is either a love-struck herbalist who stood by while her brother was killed, or a cunning priest of Hecate, who wielded great knowledge of poisons and herb law, and coldly murdered her own brother. However, her story, after returning with Jason, certainly leans more towards her being a ruthless witch. In Euripides' play Medea, published in roughly 431 BCE, Jason makes the decision to abandon Medea as his wife, and instead take up the offer of marriage to the daughter of the king of Corinth. But Jason, oh so generous Jason, is not going to kick Medea to the curb, no 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 no, she can stay as his mistress. That way, he gets the best of both worlds. Now how do you think a proud sorceress with divine heritage, incredible knowledge of poisons, and a proven ability to commit heinous crimes against her family will react? Yeah, Jason done messed up. Medea pretends to accept her husband's decision to, you know, keep her as a concubine for his pleasure, and humiliate her in the greatest way possible to humiliate a Greek woman, all the while planning an elaborate revenge. She kindly offers Jason's new wife, and her replacement, a lovely golden robe as a wedding gift, with the garment dosed with a powerful poison. From here, the accounts differ wildly. In one, Medea gives the robe to her own children, to pass on to the bride-to-be, and both the children and the bride die as intended. In Euripides, however, the bride is the sole target, with her father the king subsequently dying in his attempts to save her, touching the poisoned robe in his efforts. Also in Euripides, Medea takes things to another level. After the king and princess are killed, she punishes Jason where it hurts, his family. Taking a dagger, she stabs her own children to death, depriving Jason of the immortality in the memories of his descendants. As Jason arrives to confront her about his almost wife and almost father-in-law's death, he finds his own children brutally murdered and Medea flying away in the chariot of Hermes. When performed, this play made use of a complex mechanism that suspended the actors, a literal deus ex machina, a god machine. This is, by the way, where the term for an unexpected and convenient plot device that resolves an issue comes from. Euripides did not invent the concept, but he was infamous for how many of his plays are resolved with such divine intervention. Whether or not Medea or Circe actually existed, albeit in a far less fantastical form, is impossible to know, and largely irrelevant anyway. What matters is that the Greeks knew of them. 
They knew their stories, and their stories fascinated them, being reimagined and retold countless times, and all the while reflecting and informing Greek societies about these powerful witches. There are other individuals, which we are sure did exist, that have reputations for fantastical powers. These people seem to be described fairly positively in the writings of contemporaries, as well as classical historians. Daniel Ogden defines them as Greek shamans, as they shared similar characteristics, and included mythical figures such as Orpheus and Trophonius, as well as more definite men, such as Epimenides and Pythagoras of Theorem fame. These shamans were said to have the ability to manipulate their own souls, either by detaching them from their bodies and traversing the landscape, putting themselves in a kind of suspended animation to prevent aging, reincarnation, and the power to bilocate or to be in two distinct places at the same time. Other elements shared by the tales of these shamans were their extended retreats underground, either into tombs, hidden cellars, or caves. After months, years, or in some cases decades, these men would re-emerge, enlightened by their journey to the underworld and granted powers of divination, control of the elements, and healing abilities. Their powers and wisdom were considerable. After spending 57 years in a cave, Epimenides emerges to find himself the same age. His fame from this miracle was such that when Athens was suffering from a plague, they sent for Epimenides to purify the city. In one account, Epimenides brought both black and white sheep into the city, gathering them on the Areopagus, a rocky outcrop near the Acropolis used for trying crimes. Then, he let them go, allowing them to wander hither and thither, ordering his companions to follow the sheep. Once the sheep got tired and lay down to rest, the companions sacrificed them to whichever deity had their shrine closest. Another account describes Epimenides declaring that the plague was the divine wrath of the gods upon Athens for an ancient crime. The Cylonian affair was an attempt by an Olympic champion, Cylon, to seize the city of Athens during the games after being given assurances by the oracle at Delphi that such an act would succeed. It didn't. While Cylon and his brother managed to escape the city after their failed coup, his supporters were besieged on the Acropolis. These followers were promised their lives if they voluntarily left their refuge and stood trial. They did so, and were immediately stoned to death by the enraged Athenians. In order to cleanse the city of this crime, Epimenides had two young men, or boys, Cratinus and Cetesibius, sacrificed, in order to appease both the gods and the ghosts of the Salonian followers, who were presumably inflicting the plague upon the city. Now, aside from giving bored school children the exciting ability to work out the length of the third side of a triangle, Pythagoras was also said to have incredible powers. I read an excerpt of Diogenes Laertius's writings on the man at the beginning of the episode, where Pythagoras gains his powers through his descent to the underworld, and his immediate following upon his return. His powers were considerable. This next quote is quite long, from Porphyry's Life of Pythagoras, but I think it's worth hearing in its entirety since it describes the powers attributed to Pythagoras, as well as those gained by his companions. It is also known that when a ship was putting into port, and his friends were praying that its cargo should be theirs, Pythagoras said, Then you will have a corpse. And the ship duly arrived with a corpse on board. A great many tales even more marvellous and divine, have been told about the man, either similar to these in nature or compatible with them. In brief, there is no one of whom more achievements or more extraordinary achievements have been suspected. 
He is recorded as making infallible predictions of earthquakes and as promptly averting pestilences and fierce winds. He checked hailstorms and calmed the waters of rivers and seas so that his companions could enjoy a gentle passage. Empedocles, Epimenides, and Abaris shared similar abilities and often accomplished such things. Their poems testify clearly to this. Also, Empedocles acquired the title Wind Warder, Epimenides Purifier, and Abaris Air Traveller, because he rode on an arrow given to him by the Hyperborean Apollo and crossed rivers and seas and inaccessible places, travelling somehow through the air. Some supposed that Pythagoras had exercised the same power when he conversed with his companions in both Metapontum and Toromenium on the same day. End quote. Pythagoras was also hugely keen on reincarnation. One story tells him of intervening in the beating of a dog, as in the yelps of the animal he heard the cries of a friend from a previous lifetime. A Roman author, writing in the 2nd century CE, declared that in one of the mathematician's past lives he was a beautiful courtesan, although one has to wonder how he would know this. Perhaps this was Pythagoras reborn. We shall never know. Another time, Pythagoras visited the Temple of Athena, and recognised a shield on the wall as having been his in a previous life, when he had been Euphorbus the Trojan. According to Maximus of Tyre, quote, He said that he recognised the shield, and that the man that had killed him in battle at the time had taken it from him. The locals were amazed. End quote. Granted, if this tale actually took place, then Pythagoras would already have a reputation for magical abilities and reincarnation, but still. Pythagoras rolls up to your temple, points to a grotty shield on the wall, and says, Yep, that was mine in a past life when I was a hero of the Trojan War. Yes, and, and Menelaus was the man who killed me. Surely someone would have showed some scepticism about a stranger, not only name-dropping the heroes of the Iliad, but also claiming to have been there. Another largely respected class of magic wielder were the Sukagogoi, often translated to soul drawers or evocators, who evoked the spirits of the dead and put restless ones to rest, who often, but not always, hailed from the northern region of Thessaly. A helpful example of this work can be found in the works of Euripides, Thucydides, and a few others. They relate tales of the attempts to deal with the ghost of Pausanias, a regent of Sparta who had fought and been victorious in the Greco-Persian Wars. So why was this ghost now troubling the living? Well, Pausanias had been accused of plotting with the Persians and with the Spartan slave class, the Helots, to ensure his own power. He was, after all, merely regent for the young king of Sparta, but with the support of the Achaemenids, he could be king, not just of Sparta, but of all Greece. When a letter emerged stating his treasonous intentions, Pausanias fled to the temple of Athena, seeking sanctuary. In response, the Spartans bricked up the doors and windows to starve him out. On the brink of death, he was removed from the temple, and according to Thucydides, he died immediately upon his removal. According to another Pausanias, the regent Pausanias had murdered a Byzantine girl, Cleonice, in a fit of guilt over his planned treachery, and this girl's spirit haunted him, and only his death could subdue her ghost. According to Pausanias the writer, it was this haunting that prevented the regent from receiving protection from the temple. Despite trying to avoid polluting the temple with his death, the ghost of Pausanias apparently haunted it for some time, only leaving when the Spartans erected two bronze statues of Pausanias on the orders of an evocator. 
Ogden argues that Thucydides attempted to rationalise the telling of the haunting of Pausanias without discussing his ghost. He describes how the Spartans initially intended to throw the regent's corpse into a crevasse, only to change their mind and give him a proper burial. If they had thrown the body into a chasm, it would obviously prevent a proper burial, which would, as we've seen in the previous two episodes, incur a spirit's wrath. This would require the service of an evocator to remove, something Fusilides had no intention of humouring. So in his account, the Spartans quite conveniently don't do the thing that would definitely irritate Pausanias' spirit. Thucydides skirts the issue of requiring evocators by stating that the Spartans had erected the statues on the order of the oracle at Delphi. Aha! Perfectly rational! It had absolutely nothing to do with an evocator! Why on earth would you think that? Goodness, no. Yeah. Of course, not all magic wielders were as respected as Pythagoras and his ilk. If we think back to the tales of Medea and Circe, their use of poisons and drugs to commit evil deeds would not be unknown to Hellenistic Greeks. The word for which... Pharmakis was essentially the same word for poisons, pharmaka. The beseeching of the gods was normally in the form of the previously mentioned sacrifice and praise, essentially begging the gods to show their favour, and hoping that they were in a generous mood, or at least had been convinced by the lavish gifts and devout rituals. Greek witchcraft was intimately tied to this religious context, similar to the other societies we've covered over the last two episodes. Plato, one of the great philosophers whose work has survived the centuries, differentiates a witch, or magoi, from other religious specialists. In Plato's Republic, he states that, quote, magicians coerce the gods, while the religious man submits to their will, end quote. In this world, a magician did not respect the gods in the same manner as a pious man. They forced them to do their bidding, or at least not to interfere in a way the magician did not wish. Now, this was not solely Plato's opinion. Heraclitus of Ephesus, writing 200 years before Plato, cursed the Magoi for their impious rituals. As I covered last time, the Greeks created an image of a Zoroastrian priestly caste, the Magi, who were magic-wielding sorcerers, and legend had it that these magical abilities had been taught to Pythagoras and his followers, who then brought them back to Greece. Their disdain for the beggar priests, or agatai, that travelled around to sell their magical services, positively drips from the pages of Plato and Heraclitus. The form that epoidae, or incantations, took was often similar to ancient Egyptian spells, much like the Egypt of the 18th dynasty, the written word was meant to give more power to spells, and Greek curse tablets have been found as far as Sicily, Rome, and Egypt. These tablets, dated from both classical Greek and later Roman eras, are inscribed with the names of the target of the spells, along with the details of the requested result. There is quite a lot of variety in these objects. They could be buried in a grave, or under the target's house, thrown down a well, or otherwise placed in a precipitous location, such as a temple. They would beseech a god or spirit, sometimes asking the assistance of the individual whose grave the tablet was buried in, to inflict a range of results. In order to affect a court case, they might cause the opponent to fumble his speech, or become flustered, or otherwise fail to make his case. This excuse of being stricken by witchcraft was sometimes used by public orators struck by a loss of memory or focus as a way of protecting their reputation. Tablets were also used for romantic reasons, if you consider calling on supernatural beings to woo your prospective lover romantic. These tablets were accompanied by crude dolls of the target, often with the hair or the fingernails of the lucky person to increase the effectiveness of the spell. These dolls have been found penetrated by nails in various parts of their anatomy, which to me doesn't suggest a pleasant spell was cast. 
and put an image of one of these dolls on the Facebook page. This doll was found inside a clay pot in Egypt, along with a lead tablet that stated that, quote, The gods have the right to drag her by her hair, by her guts, to give her no comfort of food or sleep until she is obedient to me, Serapamon. End quote. Now, clearly, this was a romance surpassing even Romeo and Juliet. Of a love spells, and I am again stretching the definition of love quite substantially here, are just as unconventional to modern ears. Quote, An incantation to be recited three times over an apple. I shall throw apples at, I shall give this charm, always appropriate and edible for mortals and immortal gods. Whatever woman I give the apple to, whatever woman I throw it at and hit with it, may she go crazy with love for me, forgetting all about everything else, whether she takes it in her hand and eats it, or lays it in her lap. May she not stop loving me. Queen Aphrodite, born on Cyprus, make this charm work perfectly. Now, if any listeners actually want to try this charm, just don't get arrested for throwing fruit at people. Here is another love spell, this time specifically designed to motivate a farm animal to breed. Quote, Grind the ashes left after burning a deer's tail, and then make a paste of the powder by adding wine. Smear this paste on the testicles and penis of an animal being put to stud, and you will stimulate its desire to mate. Smearing olive oil on its genitals counteracts the stimulus. The same procedure works for humans as well. End quote. Moving away from burnt deer tails, Daniel Ogden suggests, from the writings of Plato, that wax dolls or charms had a placebo effect. As most sorcerers were charlatans, in Plato's mind, by convincing both the victim and the client of their power and showing them evidence of it, such as showing them the doll, the victim was more likely to believe that they were sick or cursed, while the client was happy to attribute any misfortune their enemy faced to the powers of their magical benefactor. But, of course, spell tablets were not always intended to manipulate or cause harm, with some being buried in the graves of young children or victims of violence, those whose death had come too soon. Restless spirits were said to be of four types. Aerai, those who died before their time, mostly children and infants. Biothanatoi, victims of violence. Agamoi, women who died in childbirth. And Atafoi, those deprived of a proper burial, often criminals of some sort or another. The tablets were inscribed with prayers by an evocator to aid the spirits of the deceased, or with messages for those who did not have a chance to say goodbye. Another example of neutral or positive users of magic can be traced back to the mythic era, in a number of magical races which coexisted with ancient humanity. According to Diodorus, the Dactyles were a race of magical people, numbering either a hundred or ten, born on the slopes of Mount Ida on the island of Crete, these beings were the supposed inventors of both fire and metalworking, and passed this knowledge on to mankind, alongside their practice of epodi, which is of course incantations. They also were meant to have trained the mythical Orpheus in his abilities. A similar race of magical islanders is also mentioned by Diodorus, the Telkines, hailing from the island of Rhodes. They had a hand in rearing the baby Poseidon, were the first to create effigies of the gods, and, rather confusingly, are also said, by Diodorus, to have also invented metalworking. Said to be sorcerers, they could control the weather at will, and could either manifest the evil eye, or were victims of the evil eye by envious rival craftsmen. He isn't quite sure. The evil eye is a topic for another day, likely an episode on the Romans, since they had a particularly novel way to ward off the effects of the eye. 
You might think it's a cock and bull story, but I assure you, you'd be hard-pressed to find better protection. But you'll have to abstain from that story for now. Laws against the use of epigogi, or charms, pharmaca, or drugs, epoidae, or incantations, and mantis, or divinations, were as varied in their location as they were in their definitions of the terms, as each polis of Greece had their own legal codes and punishments. We can speak of the Athenian legal system with more confidence, since many of the sources I have at hand are written by and for Athenians. Plato states in his laws what the punishment for witches should be. Those judged guilty of pharmaca or poisoning should be confined in prison, only receiving contact and food through slaves until their death, whereupon they were to be cast outside the city, unburied at a crossroad. Anyone that attempted to bury their remains would be liable to be accused of impiety. Should the convict have children, they were to be treated as orphans and taken in by those who sheltered such children. He takes a harder line later on in the excerpt I read at the beginning of the episode, calling for the executions of anyone found guilty of a range of magical crimes. Trials of suspected witches in classical Greece were notably rare, despite the apparent widespread belief in such acts being possible, common, and heinous. One notable example of a trial that led to not only the execution of the accused, but also their entire family, is the trial of Theoris of Lemnos, around 338 BCE. Now, I should make it clear that there is some debate among academics whether Theoris was convicted of witchcraft or simply poisoning, as the details of her case are unfortunately short in comparison to the trials of the early modern era. As previously mentioned, the connection between pharmaca and pharmakis, that is, drugs and witches, is inseparable in Greek thinking at the time. What makes this confusing is that pharmaka can mean both positive witchcraft, such as medicine and healing, and negative, criminal witchcraft, such as poisons and curses. The ambiguities of Athenian law meant that using pharmaca for healing was a dangerous game. The services could be legally offered, but if the patient began to deteriorate, accusations would fly that this was the intended result, and the pharmakis could be exiled or killed. Athenian law appears to be somewhat lenient in the application of punishment, a record written by Aristotle tells of a woman being charged with homicide after one of her customers died after drinking a love potion. However, the woman was acquitted, as it was decided that her intention was not to kill. As Theoris was found guilty, we can assume that the court decided that her intention was to kill or sicken, rather than it being accidental. The punishment for murder in Athens scaled depending on the victim. If they were a slave or a foreigner, the convicted would pay a fine or be exiled, whereas if the victim was an Athenian citizen, then the punishment was execution of the convicted, as well as their family, if it was a particularly heinous murder. However, in Theoris's trial, a distinction is made by accusing her not only of pharmaka, but also of being a prophet, a mantis in Greek, and casting epoidae. Travelling prophets had something of a reputation among the philosophers and physicians of Athens, with Plato describing them in his Republic as travelling to the doors of rich men and promising them that they could force the gods to do their bidding, for a price. Plato considered these men and women to be, at best, frauds and charlatans preying on the foolish and the greedy, and at worst, impious dangers to the polis, the city. Athens did not have specific anti-witchcraft laws unlike the city of Teos on the Ionian coast. Here, it was a crime punishable by death for the individual convicted, as well as their family, just to manufacture harmful drugs. 
Unlike Athens, the intended use of the pharmaca was irrelevant. If a potion that was meant to heal the sickness caused the patient's death, you would probably want to get your family out of Teos as quickly as humanly possible. Before we end this episode, it would be remiss of me to ignore the oracle at Delphi, the Pythia. Established around the 8th century BCE, the oracle was a female priestess at the Delphic Temple of Apollo, who, upon the death of the previous oracle, abandoned her name, position, and family to become the speaker of the gods. We don't know how these choices were made, but it appears that to become the oracle, a priestess would have had to have led a life of virtue. The oracles, and there were as many as three at one time, were held in positions of great honour, could own property free from taxation, and wore crowns at public events. Supplicants might seek the advice of the gods for any number of reasons. Should we declare war on Athens? Begin our trading voyage to Tyre? Establish a colony on the Black Sea? The answers from the Pythia would determine the actions of entire armies, and it is fair to say that the oracle was the most powerful woman in all of Greece. Those who met with the oracle were called consultants, literally, those who seek counsel, and these consultants had a four-stage journey on their hands. First, they had to get to Delphi. Delphi is located in the Valley of Phocis, just nine and a half miles from the Gulf of Corinth, requiring supplicants from far-flung Greek cities to make an arduous journey by land or sea. Once at Delphi, priests interviewed the supplicants and established if their questions were worthy of asking the oracle. The priests then prepared the acceptable supplicants through rituals and pharmaca, and assisted them in the phrasing of their questions, as well as receiving the traditional gifts to the temple and the oracle. With their questions ready, and their senses heightened through meditation and drugs, the supplicants would meet with the oracle and receive their wisdom. Once completed, they had returned to their place of origin with the words of the gods. The actual source of these visions and messages is the source of some debate. The traditional view has been that a fissure, or chasm beneath the temple, released chemical fumes that addled the senses of the oracles and gave them their wisdom. But that has subsequently been challenged by archaeologists who have not found any evidence of a fissure, or any gas leak that could explain the hallucinations. Other historians have suggested that the Pythia smoked Nerium oleander, a flower with known poisonous and hallucinogenic effects if consumed. Whatever the cause, the oracle at Delphi would continue prophesizing and delivering messages from the gods until at least the reign of Theodosius I, the Roman emperor that tolerated and sometimes ordered the destruction of the old pagan temples within the empire. During his reign, the Delphic temple of Apollo was destroyed and the oracle silenced. I'll finish today's episode by thanking Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. I've listened to Ryan's show since it began, and we've swapped tips and advice on podcasting ever since. He was incredibly helpful in the formulation of this episode, not just because he is a font of knowledge for all the questions I had, as well as providing a couple of the love spells I read earlier, but also because he has, over the last year and a half of his show, taught me so much about the world of classical Greece. This episode is actually redrafted from the time before the relaunch of the show, and when I compare them side by side, the difference in the depth and accuracy is stark, and Ryan deserves a lot of credit for that. If you found today's episode interesting and want to know more, you will struggle to find a more compelling, well-produced source of information than the history of ancient Greece. If you want to learn more about the plays of Euripides, I'd suggest episodes 52 and 53, where you can hear more about the tragic tale of Medea. 
If you want to learn everything you can about the Greco-Persian Wars, of the politics behind the heroics of Leonidas and his 300, or the naval battles of Artemisium and Salamis, Ryan has a fantastic series of 10 episodes covering the entire period. Ryan's also told me about an upcoming episode he's writing on Orpheus, the mythical magic wielder that I only touched on today, and that should be out in the next few weeks. My personal favourite episode, just for how bizarre and brutal the tales are, is 55 Dionysian Mysteries. You can find Thoag on all good podcatchers, as well as the Facebook page and Twitter. Next time, we will discover the origins and development of the Halloween festival, just in time for all those parties where you can wow your friends with your newfound historical knowledge. Think of it as my Halloween gift to you. No, no, no need to thank me. Although if you told a few friends where you learned this fascinating info, then I wouldn't complain. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.